0: it together. God is so good to us, isn't he? All of what he has ordained for us here flows out of his heart of love to us. These are not negative prohibitions that God has written to keep us in line. These are expressions of God's love to promote the maximum of all possible enjoyment of health, of happiness, and of harmony in the human race. Designed for us, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. That's true for all of the commandments of God. The commandments were not made for man or man for them, they were made designed specifically with us in mind. So they were made for us, not to keep us in line but to help us to have liberty. God is not a restrictor, he is a giver of life. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I am come that you might enjoy life abundantly. So the Lord has no intentions of crimping our style and killing our joy, but one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So what he's written here is really to safeguard our joy and to safeguard our health, our happiness, our contentment, and the harmony that he desires for the human race. The first four commandments that we've shared together had to do with our relationship to God. We've reviewed those sufficiently, Then the last six deals with man's relationships with each other. Last Sunday morning, we shared with you from that commandment that says, honor your father and your mother. God began when he started to lay down safeguards for interpersonal relationships with the home. So we dealt last Sunday with the home and God's very specific emphasis upon that primary relationship and institution that he ordained and how we are to relate to authority. The commandment we look at in verse 14 this morning says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That also specifically has to do with the home, does it not? And that primary institution that God ordained in the creation process And again, that is articulated for us. Where it speaks about the Sabbath day, it reiterates the fact that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. We can't say often enough how our faith really is based in faith in the Creator, our God. All that we see and know came into existence by way of Him. All things were made by Him. Without Him, there was not one thing made that was made. I believe that, don't you? And it's critical to our relationship with each other that we get started right. Now, the word adultery simply means to make impure. So let's broaden the scope of what we have to say this morning far beyond what definition you might already have in your mind, thou shalt not make impure even the word of God. Sometimes you've heard it said this is to be the pure, unadulterated word of God. That means it's not to be contaminated by men's opinions or prostituted by men's philosophies, but it is to say exactly what the Holy Spirit meant it to say when he inspired it to the writers in the beginning. Can you say amen? Amen. So we're broadening the scope of this commandment and the spirit of the commandment, not just the letter of the law that we would read in that one sentence. Thou shalt not make impure, and that carries with it much broader scope than just the one statement that would have been defined in your mind. God started with the human family. He ordained it from the beginning. I'd like to break this thought in half this morning and deal with it in two specific segments. First of all, the sacredness of marriage, and we'll read the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and then the second half, the sinfulness of impurity. And we'll take a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. So if you'll turn with me first of all, let's look at the Gospel of Matthew, the Nineteenth chapter, the words of Jesus. I think it's only against the background of the sacredness of what we're talking about, the sacredness of sex, that we can see the sinfulness of it. When we see God's premise to begin with, then we can understand the prohibition. And so we'll look at it from those two dimensions of the Word of God for the time He has given to us this morning. The words of Jesus, Matthew 19, verse 4, And He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Not male and male, not Adam and Adam, but Adam and Eve. That was God's way, still is. And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So first of all, we're looking at the divine creation. Marriage is divine in creation. Look at verse 4. Have you not read, He that made them in the beginning. I believe that. God created Adam from the dust of the earth fearfully, wonderfully, miraculously and breathed into him supernatural, eternal breath. He became a living soul when God breathed into that created form, and he became an eternal living soul. Now, what we believe about the origin of the species has everything to do with how we're going to behave. If we believe that we have just evolved and adapted to our environment and over the ages of time, from the lowest forms of life to animal life to where we are today, then we need not be surprised if we would just continue to behave like the rest of the animal kingdom. But I believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And the Bible says in the book of Genesis, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Notice three times in one verse, God says, I've created them. Let me read it again and take note of the repetition. When God repeats, we need to take notice. It's not there just to fill up space on a page. You know how you used to be when the teacher assigned you a 500 word essay? You would just kind of put in as many extra adjectives and adverbs and, and uh, dangling participles just to fill up the page. But God doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste any energy or effort. When he repeats, it's for a purpose. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he didn't have to repeat that but he did. In the image of God created he, him. Male and female created he, them. How long will it take us to get this through our minds? God created the heavens and the earth, the fish and the fowl and the, everything in the sea and everything that in them is. You've heard it from this pulpit. You're going to hear it again and again and again and again. I totally and unequivocally renounce evolution in any form, I believe God created the heavens and the earth. You say, Pastor, prove it to me. I don't have to prove it to you. I accept it by faith. I believe that it makes much more sense than any evolutionary theory that has no facts, that has no foundation, that has no basis for belief. None. You have to accept that by faith. Why is it so difficult to accept this book by faith? I don't happen to believe that I am part of the animal kingdom and I am expected to behave like the rest of the animals behave and live with whoever, whenever, whatever. If you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with. That's the way the animal kingdom operates. I believe I've been created in the image of God and I'm expected to live on a higher plane and level than all of the rest of the animal kingdom. I am unique in God's creative process. Let me say to you, if you're getting paid to teach young people and you're purporting evolution, shame on you. Part of the problems that we face in the morality problems in America and the world today stem because young people are made to feel that they are part of the animal kingdom, and so their behavior coincides with the rest of the animal kingdom. But I happen to believe I've been created uniquely in the image of God. He made me like himself, and that ability to respond back to him is totally unique. And verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, the fish and the fowl and everything that moves. But, oh, pastor, doesn't the vertebrate and all of the fact that they have a backbone and rib cage prove that somehow man transmigrated? No, I don't think so. I think it just proves they had the same designer. Hallelujah. And I'll tell you what, I don't know if they still make Mustangs or not, do they? They used to, but a Mustang will never become a Thunderbird. It doesn't matter. Both made by the same company, both have some of the same lines, some of the same architecture, some of the same engineering, but one was engineered to be a Mustang and one was engineered to be a a Thunderbird and they'll never transfix each other. And you see, because a, a dog and a cat and the lion and all the other animals have a backbone and a ribcage and a cranium like a man doesn't mean that somehow we lost our tail and evolved to where we are. It means the same designer put us together, same company. That's all. And you'll notice, the Bible says, and they reproduce after their kind." And they reproduced after his kind, after his kind, after his kind. And I don't believe that there was any evolution. You see, this is more than just a philosophical difference. This is a spiritual difference. You see, you can't believe in evolution and embrace Jesus. You can't teach evolution in your classroom and embrace Jesus because Jesus said, if you have a Bible, it's in red letters here. Have you not read? that He which made them in the beginning made them male and female. God, Jesus, if you embrace the teachings, if you say He has anything to say at all, you've got to hear what He said. He said God created them in the beginning. And so I accept Him as the authority for my life. He made them, and marriage is divine in its creation everything stems from that everything else we're basing morality on this morning bases on hinges on this point so we have to digest this someone asked a lady where she met her husband she said oh i met him at a travel agency you see he was my last resort Marriage is not God's last resort. Marriage is God's first institution, His primary institution. He made them in the beginning. And I base what we're going to say on that statement. Supreme in commitment, as far as God is concerned, there's one supreme commitment that's related toward Him worship the Lord and Him only. In those vertical commitments, that's number one. But among horizontal commitments, the supreme commitment is between husband and wife. There is no other commitment on the face of the earth between human beings that can approach or equal that one. It is supreme in commitment, and we need to understand it from that standpoint. Verse 5, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Those words, leave and cleave, say it all. There needs to be a very clear separation and establishment of a supreme commitment. You see, mother, if you're pouring out all of your love and affection on your kids at the expense of your husband, you're going to find your marriage in trouble when the nest is empty. The best thing you can do is to be devoted and committed to that husband and live out before them a role model that, that displays confidence and commitment. That's the greatest heritage you can give them, to see a mother who loves her husband and to see a father who loves their mother. And the primary commitment is between those two people that are married to each other for this cause. What cause? For the cause of the human Family that god ordained from the beginning should a man leave his father and mother so that means husbands you're not to be married to your job your commitment is not to your company your commitment your primary commitment is not to your not to your executive corporation your first commitment is to your spouse and that relationship is not to be sacrificed on the altar of getting ahead because that's going to suffer Somewhere down the road as well. Supreme in commitment. And I think there needs to be a severing of the purse strings and of the apron strings. Jesus said, cut the cord, get out on your own, and start establishing your own home. Huh? Remember what he said? And uh, if that doesn't happen, I can predict some difficulties along the way. Primary, supreme commitment. Steadfast in continuation, verse 6, Wherefore, they are no more twain but one. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. It is not for man's convenience or up to man's contingencies, but God meant it to be a permanent arrangement. Until death do us part. And if you're approaching marriage with anything less than total commitment, I wouldn't advise it. Because what God established from the beginning was one man and one woman together for as long as they can live, serving the Lord. A young lady came up to the pastor after the service was over. She said, I want to take issue with you about what you were talking about this morning. And he said, well, where did you disagree? She said, Well, Pastor, it's not that I disagree about what you said. I'd just like to get in on what you said. I like that arrangement too. And I understand that area. And God is interested. And I can say to you this morning, He cares about your life and the search that you have for someone to be with. And I know God is able to work that area of your life out too for His glory. Can you say amen? If he can raise the dead and He can create the heavens and the earth. He has someone uniquely special to fulfill your life as well. Miraculous in consummation. Verse 6 says, And they shall be no longer two, but one flesh. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Only God can do that for us. I said in the early service, for two people so totally different from Jim and Becky to be made one flesh, that's a miracle. To take an Italian and an English German and put them together and uh, provide harmony and, and wholesomeness, we have a miracle marriage. By the same token, anybody so totally different as Bob and Doris Jane. God could put them together and blend them together into one, that's a miracle. And Bob said, amen. And for God to take two people so different than, than Michael and Vicky, put them together, you got a miracle going there, brother. you got a miracle, and they too shall be one flesh. And that's God's way. From the very beginning, you see, God had the idea of boys and girls. It wasn't something the devil concocted. It wasn't something he brought to light. It's sex is not the devil's thing. God instituted the most beautiful relationship that can exist between two people. It's a miracle of God. And he designed it to bless us. When we consider the depth of the dimension of that relationship, he said, that's what I want to represent me as an illustration between the relationship of the church and Christ. Read Ephesians 5 And you'll see there the mystery that he unfolds. And he says, just like when the body comes together and we have communion, that's what takes place within the lives of two people, the common union or the communion that exists. There's an equivalent, you can write the equation, husband and wife equals communion in the church. I can't think of anything more sacred than that, can you? Communion. Hebrews said marriage is honorable in all. God has ordained for us. The other side, we'll need to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 18. You can kind of put a marker there because we'll read several verses from there. toward the end of the message today. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. You see, God wrote verse 14 of Exodus 20 to keep us from getting hurt. He knew that if a man committed fornication, he sinned against his own body. There is nothing, perhaps, in all of society that would do more psychological damage, more emotional damage, more physical damage, or more spiritual damage than this particular disobedience. And so he says to us, flee. Some things we're told to buckle on the armor and stand, and having done all to stand and withstand, defeat the devil. But in this area, he does not tell us to fight. He says, flee. And 27 times in the New Testament, dealing with this area, he says consistently, flee. Don't stick around. Don't put up a fight. Don't try to resist. Just go. Because if you put yourself in that position, You've sinned already, get out of there, flee. Joseph left his coat behind and just split. And he is a perfect illustration of how to handle that dimension. How can I do this great sin against God? To so sin against the home, against the church, and against the nation as well, because Proverbs 14, 34, you can quote it as well as I can. Righteousness exalts a nation But sin is a reproach to any people. So there are some verses of Scripture I want to give you quickly. If you'd like to jot the references down, I don't know that we have a lot of time to read them and deal with them separately, but they are the Word of God and they speak to us, and I think it would be good for us to digest them. Just listen to one in Job 31.11 speaking about impurity, for this, he says, is a heinous crime, yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for it is a fire that consumeth to destruction. It is a fire that consumeth to destruction. With that same thought in mind, let me read from Proverbs, the sixth chapter, the 26th verse. Let me just turn quickly and listen. Verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go up on hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Verse 32, whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, for he doth destroy his own soul. Underline that for he doth destroy his own soul. Same thing Paul wrote in Corinthians. We sin against our own body. It's impossible to take fire into your bosom and your your clothes not be burned. How do we handle, what do we do about this built-in emotion that God has given to us? There are several ways to handle this. Number one is repress those God-given drives and feelings. Repress them. What does that mean? It simply means build a bridge, build a barrier. Just close off the flow uh, of those emotions like building a, a front of a dam. Now the water is still flowing behind the dam. And once the water continues to flow, what's gonna happen? You've got the dam built, what's gonna happen after that that water just continues to flow it'll last for a while but eventually that dams either gonna break or the water's going to just overflow and it's only a permanent answer at best I'm not here to tell you the pastor this morning the answer to this drive is repression I don't think that's going to help you for very long I think the problem will just surface later. The second way is release it. Don't repress it, release it. The spirit of the age is just let the water flow, let it find its own level. It's, this is the 20th century Times have changed. Just do your own thing. if it feels good, go ahead. Just release it. God gave this, this is a natural uh, drive, and so just release it. I'm not here to tell you that's the answer either) <laughs> I think we've just read to you the consequences of that kind of philosophy. And I think, you know, we're going to reap and are indeed reaping the harvest of that kind of philosophy in the lives of young people and adults. It's everywhere, church. It's on TV. You know, you think these commandments are out of date, but uh, number six, seven, and eight are the plot of almost every program you will turn on. Killing, stealing, and adultery. You watch for it. Those three commandments are the plot that all Hollywood centers around. Stealing, killing, and adultery. And if it doesn't have those, they don't seem to have any more between their ears to put something together that makes sense. It's on about a third or fourth grade juvenile level. They've never really satisfied juvenile curiosity. And they are just little kids. Trying to put down on paper their own frustrations and fantasies. That's the only answer I can give you. There is just absolutely little intellectual credibility that comes across that, too. It's everywhere, it pervades our entire society. And the answer seems to be not repression, release it. What's the answer? Number three, redeem it. I'm so glad that we have a Jesus who we can bring into our life, who can bring with him a control mechanism. He satisfies my soul. He fills the empty place. His love is in control. I'm enraptured by his grace. Tis heaven to be about him. I cannot live without him, hallelujah. He comes and brings lordship over my physical appetite. You see, I don't wanna kill myself with my fork and spoon. And so I've got to have the lordship of my, in my life over my diet. I've got to have control in other natural areas of my life, and it's simply bringing Jesus Christ as the keeper of my soul and bringing him into that dimension consciously of my life. That's not repressing it. That's not releasing it. That's redemption because when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. Hallelujah. He's able to bring control and he's able to bring redemption into that area of my life. Not only that one, but every other area. Hallelujah. I'm so glad for the verse of Scripture that says, unto him who was able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before the throne of his glory. You can't keep yourself. There's no force that you can repress those natural drives, but there is a controller, one who's come into our hearts and our lives to bring with him, hallelujah, hallelujah, the dynamic that makes it possible to experience the maximum of all that God has ordained for us from the time of creation in the beginning. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now we need to look at the remedy. As I know that in an auditorium this size there must be those who feel extremely uncomfortable even reading verse 14 of chapter 20 but I want you to know something this morning there is a remedy for guilt the blood of Jesus Christ in Isaiah the first chapter God says come now and let us reason together Though your sins be of scarlet they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's why I do what I do, because I have good news to give everybody I meet. The gospel simply is a word meaning good news. You don't have to live with guilt. You can be free, indeed, free today. Hallelujah. That's good news. You still have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. For ye know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, be the fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor abusers with themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You mean, pastor, they won't go to heaven? That's exactly what I mean. That's what God's Word says right here. Black ink on white paper. It's exactly what it says. But oh, there's a conjunction there. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, praise God, and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, what a tremendous conjunction that is. And such were some of you, but you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. What I'm saying to you this morning is if you've gotten caught up in some kind of a relationship that's Contrary to God's Word, if you've held hostage by the enemy, you can be free this morning. Hallelujah! You can confess that to God and He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But such were some of you, but you're washed. Oh, hallelujah! But you are sanctified, you are justified by the Spirit of God. Oh, that thrills my soul. Hallelujah, he takes our sin and he puts it behind his back. Hallelujah, in the sea of his forgetfulness to be remembered against us no more. Don't continue on in the way you're going. You're going to hell. You need to be washed. You need to be sanctified. You need to be justified if you're going to inherit the kingdom. And you see, you say well we're all christians here pastor i know and so were the corinthians this letter wasn't written to the world it was written to the church and so it's, to the church the message still needs to be heard thou shalt not commit impurity thou shalt not commit adultery if you're stopping by the pornography stand and picking up that trash on the way home jesus said you have heard it said thou shalt not commit adultery but i say unto you He that looketh with lust in his heart is guilty also. So if you've got that filthy habit, you need to take it to the cross this morning, walk out of this place absolutely and totally free. But you are washed, but you are cleansed, but you are sanctified, but you're justified. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, we need a mighty sweeping revival of morality in our nation. And it's got to start right here in this church can't start out there somewhere. Abortion is a horrible, heinous thing. But I tell you, every child that's been slaughtered was conceived. How are we gonna wipe out abortion? I'll tell you how. Put morality back in the hearts of the people of America. You can replace all the Supreme Court justices you want to. But until we have a sweeping move of God that puts morality back into the soul of America, we're just fooling ourselves. Every one of them that was killed was conceived. As that act of conception, we need to deal with the root of the problem, not just the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem, church, is we're an immoral nation. Until we get morality back, We're fooling ourselves, putting Band-Aids on cancer. We've got to have a revival of morality back again in our heart and our mind. Oh, God, sweep over this church. God, sweep over this community. Sweep over this state until the people of God are the people of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.